This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. As COVID-19 continues to spread and hospital numbers soar under the strain of yet another new variant, the climate crisis confronts us daily with crippling floods in Australia and heat waves in Europe. And the war in Ukraine shows no sign of abatement. People have just started switching off the news. A Reuters Institute report into digital media earlier this year found that interest in news has fallen sharply around the world, from 63% in 2017 to 51% in 2022, while two-thirds of Australians say they actively avoid the news. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about why we are switching off the news and what we can do about it. It's Friday, the 22nd of July. Lenore, you started one of our news meetings this week with a bit of a COVID in-joke that elicited some mm, sardonic laughter from some of the editors in the room. Could you tell us what you said and why people reacted like that? Maybe this wasn't my finest leadership moment, but <laughs> I can remember saying, well, what are we going to write about today? Because I don't know, like I felt like I needed to acknowledge that we're exhausted. We're exhausted by this story. It is still the biggest story In the country, the most consequential story, the death rate is soaring, you know, millions of Australians are sick, the virus is mutating and we're getting new variants and, of course, we have to report on it all of the time. But we've been reporting on it for two and a half years and, like, it really is exhausting and increasingly difficult to find ways to present the information in a way that people want to consume it, you know. I think there is a general exhaustion around the news in general and COVID in particular, which is what I was slightly ham-fistingly referring to. And COVID's not the only bad news story that's around at the moment, is it, Mike? It's never the only bad news story that's around. There are always <laughs> bad news stories around. But it's around. the baddest. <laughs> it is the baddest. And I think the thing about COVID particularly at the moment, is that it feels like we're sliding back into a pattern that we thought we'd come out of. You know, it feels like previous parts of the pandemic where we're counting deaths, we're looking at restrictions, you know, we thought we'd left all that behind us. So that is particularly a sort of psychologically grim place to be, I think. As for the other non-COVID news, as ever, there is a lot of bad news around, and particularly with the climate crisis. It's different in scope from just a regular bad news story like an air crash or, you know, a natural disaster, because people project into the future and it looks terrible. You know, they're thinking about their children or themselves or future generations generally and what their lives are going to be like in 20, 30, 40 years' time. And then there's Ukraine, of course, which similarly, you know, on a shorter time scale, we hope, but to seem there's no no sign of war ending in a good way. So, yeah, everywhere you look, there are bad stories, which is always true. But at the moment, they do seem to be have a particularly sort of apocalyptic or, you know, groom grinding years ahead feel to mm. them. Because they do. I mean, I think we are in an era where there are these crises that are existential and uncertain. We don't know how they're going to play out. There's a multitude of them. They're connected. And it leaves you, anybody, any thoughtful person with a really sort of deep 
uncertainty and anxiety about the world. And what do we know about how readers, listeners, people in general are reacting to this news, Lenore? Well, it's interesting because early in the pandemic, readership across all mastheads and all forms of media really soared. And readers had this insatiable need to know about this new thing that was happening. And we were providing really factual information. You know, remember the daily briefings and the case numbers and all the explainers about what is this virus and what does it do to your lungs and all the maps and the graphs and what's happening in your local council area and who's, you know, like which country's doing what where. And people really wanted to consume that in the early days. But now, probably because it's dragging on and on and on, And because there's this kind of multitude of bad news, there's a number of studies that are showing that there are a cohort of news consumers who are just wanting to turn off the news altogether. I think the Reuters study found 42% of Americans are actively avoiding the news. In Australia, about two-thirds of respondents said that at times they actively avoided the news. I think because it's overwhelming and that's understandable, But, I mean, that does present a pretty big challenge to those of us who both have a responsibility to bring people the news and who really believe that the news is the thing that allows a collective understanding and a collective response to the challenges that the world is facing. You know, like it's on us to step up to the challenge of getting the news to people in ways that they can consume because non-consumption of news, you know, holus bolus across the society, I think leads to a very insular, you know, self-absorbed, singular mindset, which I, I think is kind of dangerous. Like we provide the sort of commonality of understanding and, you know, we've got to find a way to keep doing that now more than, more than any other time. Mm. What does that kind of disaffection lead to, Lenore? Well, I guess it's something that politicians are grappling with right now as we face this new wave of COVID-19 in that a logical response would be to mandate masks again or to mandate work from home again or lots of things. But one of the things that politicians have to take into account is the extent to which people are just goddamn well over it. And if you mandated masks, for instance, would people even obey? If you mandate it, you have to enforce it and are people just over it? So, It can, to answer your question, it can lead to people just shutting down from, for example, public health messaging. And I guess, I mean, my personal view is that if we're not going to mandate masks, I think the public health messaging needs to be really ramped up and revamped right now along the lines of you need to do this not just for yourself but to remind people of the collective rationale for wearing a mask or for being responsible, that you're helping protect really vulnerable people. And isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we're about? You know, to remind them of their collective responsibility. I don't think that we've got nearly enough messaging along that line. But yeah, that's the danger. One of the things that Reuters digital report found, Mike, was that people thought there was too much news about COVID and politics in particular. What do we do about that? It's very difficult for anyone outlet to do anything about that because I think the problem is not so much that we're not producing more news than we did before in in, in previous years, nor is nor are regular newspapers producing more news. It's just that the way it's coming out is different and people are getting the same 
story repeated at them from multiple sources because they don't consume news in the way that they did when they were mostly getting it through newspapers and the TV. So if you have a smartphone, which pretty much everyone does in Australia, it's very hard to avoid being bombarded with the news through either through news channels or through your social media feed. Even if you don't want to, even if you actively want to avoid the news, it's not that easy to do that. It is really difficult to get out of that sense of being under siege from the news, I think. And do you think there are things that we can do? We can be really careful to present things with perspective and context. So there are a lot of medical studies that come out that sound dire or terrible, but when you interrogate them, it's not a peer-reviewed study, it's not an accepted view yet. There's lots of stories in that sort of vein where to report them accurately and put them with perspective and context around them actually makes it easier for people to digest and understand and makes it less overwhelming. So that's one thing that we can do. The other thing that we can do is sort of embedded in The Guardian's mission statement from our global editor-in-chief, Kath Viner, which is to use clarity and imagination to provide hope, which is not to say that we just sort of make up good news stories, but when we're reporting, if there's a way of looking for a solution or injecting some sort of hope or some sort of solution or some sort of idea into a story that gives people hope, that's what we should do because just loading people up with all the terrible things and not talking about what's going right or what could be done does result in people being overwhelmed. And, you know, I think the energy transition and global heating is one example of that. Like, on the one hand, any night that you watch the news and you look at what is happening with events like weather events, floods, fires around the world, and you're seeing the climate crisis or the impacts of the climate crisis right there on your screen, and it's horrific. But then if you think about the ways that technology is improving, the the leaps forward that many countries and many types of technology are making, we do have the wherewithal to actually do something about this. And putting that context into stories, I think, is one thing we can do that actually helps this. It's really interesting that you say that, Lenore, because we had our audience editor go through some of the biggest stories of the last few weeks. And one of them was change is possible. Meet the Gen Zers who embrace climate optimism. Mm. And it was about, you know, what young people are doing, the action they're taking. So it did have some solutions in it. And I think that the other part of that is also to take a backwards looking historical perspective as well to see how far we've come. It's like there are lots of social and economic indicators that show things have got materially and socially better for many, many disadvantaged groups of people, not just in Australia, but throughout the world over the past relatively recent period. That's not to be Pollyanna and say everything's getting better, we're making progress towards some, you know, nirvana. So, yeah, we have to try to provide that historical perspective and that there are good things to draw out of where we've come from as well as where we're going to. And I think we can look at stories that show good things about humanity, you know, people who help each other in the floods or, you know, that reaffirm the human spirit, if you like. And people really respond to those stories. There's a real hunger for those stories. One of the things we ran recently was just a little story about a choir in Brisbane that was singing Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill in a community choir. And Kate Bush wrote to them and said how great she thought it was. And I've got to admit, watching the video of that song made me cry. And I kind of thought, why did I cry? And I think it was because it was a whole lot of people just being joyful together. And that's something people need to see too. 
Mm. sort of redefining what news is to some extent, isn't it? And these are not sort of breaking news stories, but a lot of the stories we do or, you know, features that we write about relationships, for example, and about how to live, like some people call service journalism about... Mm. We wrote a story about why houses in Australia are so cold in the winter and that, that, that kind of story, although it's not a good news story, it's a story that connects with how people are living now. But there are many other stories, like we wrote a story this week about mayonnaise, <laughs> which is just comparing what do you think are the best brands of mayonnaise in Australia. It did really well. Uh, people love to read about that. It's, it's, yeah. not, a, it's not an earth-shattering story. It's not going to change the world in any significant or way. Or how you can kind of cut corners and save money and cook good food when the cost of living is soaring. Or how you can look after your clothes so they last longer and you don't have to buy new ones. Or all kind. I mean, that service journalism, people are liking that and I think that's a valid thing for us to do. They don't have to uh, be making any profound point but um, mm. it's part of uh, and also if you if you have if you leaven the bad news with those kind of stories that brings people to a place where they can get the news if mm. they want to as well. Well we've also changed some of the way we distribute our news right Lenore like young people are mm-hmm. one of the most disengaged groups so we're doing news on TikTok now. Mm. And <laughs> it's going really well and we're doing different kinds of news I think before the election campaign, we were talking to some of the younger staff members about what sorts of things we should do. And one of them said it would be really great to get a, a kind of glossary on via short videos of terms people might not understand. I admit I was kind of surprised because some of the terms were what is GDP? You know, what is pork barrelling? What is a hung parliament? But we do pepper those terms through our stories. And if people, readers don't know, we do have a job to tell them. And those videos are going really, really well, particularly among younger readers or content consumers who consume content more via YouTube or via TikTok. And if that's how they want to consume news, then that's how we have to deliver them news. So what happens if we are unable to change and provide people with news that both informs them and that they actually want to read? Going back to what I said before, I think the thing that scares me the most about people turning off the news is that it leads to insularity and to only looking after you and yours, you know, that I think everyone probably had a little dream or a fantasy or a pull during the pandemic at some point, like, oh, maybe I'll just go and, like, get a cottage in the mountains and just live there by myself and I can't bear this anymore kind of thing. But But if you abandon the idea of any kind of collective solution or collective responsibility, I just think that takes us down a really awful path. So the idea of celebrating, you know, people being joyful together or celebrating people helping one another or acts of kindness, I think is part of what we can do. Next, bison and baggage. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. What is it for you today, Lenore? Well, I'm going on a trip to Europe in about a month and so I am absolutely horrified and mesmerised by pictures of the lost luggage mountains at airports <laughs> around the world and the global lost luggage crisis and I spend my spare time thinking about what I can possibly fit in my carry-on bag that will get me through and how I can make sure that my bag doesn't end up in that enormous pile of bags. That's what I can't get out of my head. <laughs> Mike, what stuck in your mind this week? Well, in the spirit of today's podcast, 
Uh, I chose a story out of the UK about how they have released three bison, wild bison, into the Kent countryside for the first time in thousands of years. When Would I say, you be concerned walking when through I say the Kent I'm countryside? Of well, that. <clears throat> when you say into the Kent countryside, they only have five hectares inside a fence at the moment. Although okay, that, is due, that is due to expand <laughs> drastically soon. This story went really well. And a lot of our rewilding stories are very, very popular because for the reasons that we talked about earlier, I think it's mm. people feel like it's something that is holds out the promise of a different way of living and a better way of living in lots of ways. And it's just a, yeah, it's just a kind of lovely story about people living, hopefully, in harmony with quite, quite wild animals, quite large wild animals. Uh, speaking of large wild animals, <laughs> this brings me to what I can't get out of my mind, which is a massive kangaroo that was in the park next to my house, in between me and my house, and I couldn't I couldn't get there. It watched me and it was so scary. Have you ever it's encountered a, a kangaroo? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to I lived it. in Canberra for 30 years. There's <laughs> lots of them. But he just staring at me. Mm. Anyway, I think... I think um, you're anthropomorphizing <laughs> just a tiny little bit. I think I have to get some um, rewilding skills. <laughs> yes. Anyway, there's lots of lovely details in the bison story. I really recommend people go and read it. Thanks very much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>